welcome to Occult Experiments in the Home, Magic, Spirituality and the Paranormal in Personal Experience and in Practice. Dreams are a bit like poems. They both offer a possibility of stepping right outside of everyday language, showing things with an intensity that's very far beyond the normal. And by doing that, casting bright and focused light on details, on nuances of meaning that ordinarily you wouldn't see and ordinarily you might not get to talk or think about. Traditionally, the ability to keep silence is regarded as one of the magical virtues that magicians are encouraged to cultivate, to know, to will, to dare, and to keep silence is the full set of magical virtues, also known sometimes as the powers of the Sphinx. But it was silence that caught my attention this week. I'd come across people for whom the issue of speaking out or keeping silence was presenting real problems. As magicians, perhaps we don't have to worry any longer about the Inquisition catching up with us. Yet there can still be very serious repercussions as a consequence of talking out about one's spiritual or magical practice. The medical and psychological mainstream don't have any other register to put these experiences in other than psychosis. This is an attitude that's now only in the very early stages of starting to change. Magical and spiritual practices have benefits, but they also pose challenges. And the challenges that they pose can often lead to forms of detriment and harm. And if in that situation one feels compelled to keep silent about experiences, then that harm can be compounded. The cultivation of silence seems to me obviously double-edged. On the one hand, it has a protective function. It keeps our practice away from the gaze of those who might misinterpret it. But when we're struggling or when we run into difficulties, as I think is inevitable from time to time, that injunction to keep silence can become isolating. And if we take it literally, it can prevent us from accessing sources of help. And then, on the other hand, there was of course my own relationship to the injunction to keep silence because it's one that, in a literal sense, I'd never ever stuck to. Of course, I totally respect and observe confidentiality with regard to other people's experiences. But when it comes to my own experiences, I've never really shied away from talking about them. Personally, I've always felt that the benefits of doing this outweigh the potential pitfalls. The pitfall, of course, is speaking out too soon, thinking that I've understood something 
when in fact I've only partially understood it or mistook it entirely for something else. After I decided to try to talk about the magical virtue of keeping silence, suddenly a dream came along that seemed to present to me the dilemma of keeping silence in a very personal way. I'm at the university and at the university sewage management is a really big issue. So in order to deal with this every student is obliged to do an induction and after that every student is obliged to work shifts with no pay helping manage all the sewage that the people at the university produce. It's an old building, very old, red brick, early Victorian. But inside, all the original sewage processing equipment has been replaced with digital technology and everybody sits working at computer terminals processing the sewage. Outside, around the building, is a lake, and this lake is part of the processing system. And there's this guy who rather inadvisably decides to jump into the lake and have a swim because the water does look rather inviting. But now his clothes smell really badly of sewage and he tells me he doesn't know how to wash them. He doesn't know how to use the laundrette. So I offer to show him because I've taken pity on him. I can see how everybody is steering well clear of him because his clothes smell so badly. So we arrange a time to meet so I can show him how to use the washing machines. And now his wife and children have joined him. And I notice that, oddly, this man has exactly the same hairstyle as his young son. And I can see that somehow this hairstyle is sort of fake. It's attached to his head by some sort of device. What sort of father has the same hairstyle as his son? And then... He seems to notice that I've noticed this and he gives me a look that seems to say it's a long story and we'll talk about it when we meet. And now I'm having to perform Bach's famous Toccata and Fugue in D minor. The piece has been arranged in several parts and there are several musicians involved. I'm just one of them. And I have no idea how to play this part but I'm willing to give it a try and I feel really up for it and then just before I'm about to start I realise or I'm told that the piece is played in silence all the musicians playing parts they'll just be pressing the keys there will be no sound and despite realising this I'm still up for giving it a go but then suddenly I feel a an alarming sensation in my nether regions. And I look down, and to my absolute horror, I realise that I've pissed myself, shat myself, and ejaculated all at the same time. And I think, oh, it doesn't matter, I've got this, it's going to be okay. No one will notice, I'll just keep going and everything will be fine. And I try to surreptitiously adjust my underwear just to make sure that no one's going to notice. 
but it all goes wrong and I end up making things even worse and now there's a rank smell pervading the room and everyone can see and everyone knows exactly what's happened and at this point I just start to feel absolutely mortified and finally I make the decision that I'm not going to be able to continue I'm not going to be able to pull this off and the dream starts to come to an end and I find myself returning back to waking consciousness and as I'm just about awake I realise that that rank smell is familiar it's a smell I've only ever come across in dreams as far as I'm aware it's a kind of horrible farmyard manure kind of smell but with a strange chemical edge to it I've not experienced that smell in my dreams for quite a few years and whenever it appeared in the past it was always in connection with death and decay but not this time this is the only time I've had a dream and that smell has appeared and there's not been corpses or graveyards involved the idea of a musical piece being played in silence Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor could justifiably be described as a masterpiece. So maybe what we have here is a great work, the great work, perhaps, of magic. What if we take this as an analogy? The participation of magicians in the great work of magic is like a group of musicians each playing a part in a masterpiece. But the striking thing here is the piece is being played in silence. Every musician taking part is not producing sound, but silence. On one level, this conveys a sense of privacy, protection. By performing in silence, it ensures that nobody but the musicians will be aware of the performance. It means there won't be an audience. And maybe there's also a sense here that this applies on an individual level as well. That every person with a magical practice ultimately practices alone and privately and in silence because we only directly experience our own practices. We never really know directly what other magicians are experiencing. But I think there's another dimension of meaning here that's pointing towards silence in a different sense. And I think this is the dimension that the dream is highlighting most of all because we have a problem here. Suppose you were actually going to attempt getting together with some mates and performing a piece of music in silence. How would you be able to coordinate to one another? How would you be able to relate to each other in the performance? It's easy to know where you are and what you're doing when the music is audible. 
But when the music isn't audible and the whole point of the performance is that the music isn't audible, then it's an issue. Speaking from my own experience in the field of occultism, spiritual practice, it's not so much the things that people say that necessarily gives me a sense we're on the same page. There are some magicians out there, magical practitioners, writers, podcasters, who express themselves very differently from the way that I do, and they have very different views of the world and what's going on in the world in terms of their politics and beliefs. There are some people out there on the right of the political spectrum with whom I would certainly disagree, but... At the same time, in the way they talk about things, rather than what they talk about, I can sense that in terms of spiritual practice, in terms of understanding, we're on the same page. We're playing the same music. Where experience of the divine is concerned, experience of the absolute, that's something ineffable, something indescribable. And who we are and what sense we make of those experiences on one level doesn't really matter. If we're a practitioner of the great work of magic, then we recognise another practitioner of that great work, not through what they say or do, but through a sense of a shared connection to something that can't be said or expressed at all. Where there's not much of that shared connection between people, then I think you're likely to get the ongoing schisms and arguments that are the daily drama of the spiritual scene. Where there is a shared sense of connection with the absolute, then maybe there's a unique opportunity there to hold all that difference and division in abeyance. And could this be another and a deeper sense of what to keep silence might actually mean. That it means to always side oneself with that which can't be said, can't be made audible. What's audible, of course, is always going to sound different and provoke different responses in everyone. But on the other hand, what's silent always sounds exactly the same to all. How do you express an affinity with someone you might fundamentally disagree with, someone you might regard as causing harm, without seeming to collude with or apologise for them? I'm not sure that you can. And in that case, maybe in this world the only type of relationship that's possible there is one that is silent, one that is never expressed, except in a silent recognition of that shared connection to something that is unsayable. So silence sounds the same to everyone. Silence is universal absolute. And as magicians we keep silence, we cleave to that silence 
in order to maintain that connection with the Absolute. Yet when we try to express, engage in this expression of the silence with one another, we discover that it's impossible, like it's impossible for a group of musicians to play a piece in silence together. And in the dream, as soon as I try to do this, something very unfortunate happens. This is the point at which it's maybe helpful to bring in the other powers of the Sphinx. To know, to dare and to will. These seem to have been formulated originally by Eliphas Levi. To attain the sanctum regnum, he writes, in other words, the knowledge and power of the Magi, there are four indispensable conditions. An intelligence illuminated by study, an intrepidity which nothing can check, a will which nothing can break, and a discretion which nothing can corrupt and nothing intoxicate. To know, to dare, to will, to keep silence. Such are the four words of the Magus, inscribed upon four symbolical forms of the Sphinx. The Sphinx is often depicted as an amalgamation of various animals. It has the head and face of a human being, but it also has other bits, parts of a bull, an eagle, and a lion. And Levy goes on to propose how these virtues of the magician relate to the different aspects of the Sphinx. He who aspires to be a sage, he writes, and to know the great enigma of nature, must be the heir and despoiler of the Sphinx, his the human head in order to possess speech, his the eagle's wings in order to scale the heights, his the bull's flanks in order to furrow the depths, his the lion's talons to make a way on the right and the left before and behind. And following on from this, what gets handed down to us through the Western magical tradition is a series of correspondences between the powers of the Sphinx, the elements, and the aspects of the Sphinx. So, supposedly, according to Levy, to know corresponds with the element of air and the human aspect of the Sphinx. To will corresponds to the element of earth and the bull. To dare is fire and the lion. And to keep silent corresponds to the element of water and the eagle's wings, which are also part of the Sphinx. I must confess that these correspondences don't quite resonate with me feel a bit arbitrary, a bit forced, and I don't find it surprising that Alistair Crowley should come along in the 1940s and in his book Magic Without Tears jumble all of this up and uh, he even adds a fifth power 
to the powers of the Sphinx. This is what he writes. You are familiar, he says, with the four powers of the Sphinx, attributed by the adepts of old time to their four elements. Air is to know, fire is to will, water is to dare, and earth is to keep silence. But now that a fifth element, spirit, is generally recognised in the Kabbalah, I have deemed it proper to add a fifth power corresponding, to go. My sense of what Kroll is doing there is, by adding this fifth power, to go, he's bringing in an idea somewhat akin to the Tao in Taoism and to the Dharma in Buddhism, the idea of a way or a road or a course or a method, a means by which we move forward and progress. So these powers of the Sphinx, they're not just about qualities that we have in some kind of static way. With that fifth power to go, there's also a sense of a putting into action, a way of being that is at the same time a doing. These powers aren't just qualities or ideals that we aspire to, we live them out. They're a vehicle by means of which we act in the world. His elemental attributions are all jumbled up in comparison to Levi's. And it's notable maybe that he ascribes will to the highest material element, fire. Because, of course, Crowley was the founder of Thelema, which is the Greek word for will. So, although I think it's useful to bear in mind the powers of the Sphinx as a useful list of personal qualities, of virtues that a magician might want to cultivate. Ultimately, perhaps it's a little bit arbitrary, a little bit contrived, and certainly the elemental correspondences feel a bit random. And maybe Levy himself comes closest to a recognition of this when he writes in order to dare we must know in order to will we must dare we must will to possess empire and to reign we must be silent it's almost as if here there's a tacit recognition that all these qualities are all kind of tangled up in each other in a inextricable way that really it's difficult to separate one from all the rest returning to the dream I'm not going to lay claim to saying anything authoritative about these so-called powers and their supposed relationships with each other but I do think they're interesting things to consider according to individual cases or instances in the dream I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that I'm supposed to play a piece of music in silence. But I have no clue how to do that. Is knowing what to do but not knowing how to do it hitting the mark in terms of knowing? It's not very clear, is it? <laughs> but definitely in the dream, 
I seem to be on the mark when it comes to willing and daring. I'm up for giving it a go, playing this piece of music. And I'm still willing to keep going, even when that unfortunate accident befalls me. I kind of imagine that I can carry on going without anyone noticing. And only when it becomes unfortunately apparent that that's not going to be the case do I make the decision not to continue. But despite being willing to continue, there's something interesting here in the dream with regard to will. That unfortunate experience, suddenly, completely out of the blue, discovering that I've pissed myself, shat myself and ejaculated, that's certainly something I didn't will to do. Those excretory functions, they sit on the boundary between voluntary and involuntary. We have a certain degree of control over them. We can affect the timing of them happening, but we can't prevent them happening altogether. So I'm willing to do something I have no idea how to do, and which may indeed be impossible, when suddenly something involuntary happens. The two things are opposite ends of a spectrum from one another. On the one hand, something it seems impossible to make happen, and on the other hand, something is impossible in the dream to stop happening. The dream is highlighting something odd about the nature of human will. We are strange creatures, physical beings with a material body. Our feet are on the earth, but the experience of being human is also about how we seem as if we're poking through into other dimensions apart from the material dimension. For instance, there's this cloud of sensations and feelings that surrounds this material body that we have. None of the other ones that we can see, but only this one. And then, at the top of our necks, where our faces are, we discover a perception of an external world that seems to be arising from a very specific perspective and also alongside that thoughts and concepts and meanings that seem to be coming from a place completely outside of this world that we perceive. It's quite bizarre. We're half in this thing that we call material reality and half out of it, but it's so normal to us that we rarely notice or see it in those terms. Sometimes I feel as if if only there weren't all these perceptions and feelings and ideas and concepts, I might actually be able to see things clearly. But such is our nature. And one way of thinking about that is to see ourselves as straddling different worlds and each of these different worlds implying a different kind of body as well as a material body, a feeling body and a mental body. The processes of our material body it seems to us take care of themselves. We don't have to make our material body breathe or excrete or digest. 
it just does those things. And similar, perhaps as well, in terms of the emotional body. We don't make ourselves get angry or sad. Feelings just happen and they take a form that we recognise. We don't have to create feelings, they're already there. The material body and the emotional body have a degree of objectivity to them. Feelings and sensations and bodily processes are things that just happen. But it's very different when we get to the mental body, the world of thoughts and concepts and ideas. These feel subjective, they're not objective. I think therefore I am, as Descartes famously said, as if thinking is something that a self does, that we have to make happen, that it's us that is doing that. It's from theosophy that this idea comes down to us of the human being having various bodies, and also the idea that some of these bodies are more developed than others. From this comes the really intriguing idea that sensations and feelings have that objective dimension to them because they arise as processes in bodies that are fully developed. Whereas thoughts and concepts and ideas, these feel what we describe as subjective because they're arising in a body, the mental body, that is as yet partially developed. The implication is that when the mental body is fully developed, thoughts will be experienced as objective processes like digestion and excretion. It won't feel like there's an us making it happen. It won't feel like it's an effort. When we imagine beings that have a more developed mental body and that don't reside on the material or emotional planes, then something like the concept of an angel comes into view. Imagine a being that consists of a fully developed mental body. Its existence is purely as an objective process of thought. A lot of magicians I've spoken to who've done work with angels, myself included, have often reported how they seem so dispassionate, almost mechanical, a kind of function that infallibly executes itself. In our everyday experience, what probably comes closest to an angel is the idea of a machine or a computer something that constantly and infallibly performs a specific function that can't go wrong because it doesn't have a self that can get in the way of doing what it needs to do. When machines or computers go wrong, of course, that's always due to some kind of material failure or human error. What I'd suggest, and what I think the dream was pointing to, is that the human will is like the human mental body. It's not yet fully developed. And we can tell this because it feels subjective. It feels, when we will something, that we have to make something happen. 
there's the old classic philosophical question of whether humans have free will or whether it's an illusion and there's no such thing. In the dream, I'm willing something that can't happen, playing music in silence, and also not willing things that do happen, that unfortunate accident arising from the material body. The human will, perhaps, is a work in progress, something that's not fully developed, something that's in a process of growing still, from subjective to objective. When it's finished, perhaps, it will be infallible, like the machine, the computer, the angel. And that may sound a little alarming, may sound unpleasant, stripping us of our autonomy and humanity. But think about it in these terms. If it were the choice between having the freedom to decide and choose between every single impulse that you have and knowing that even though you didn't choose it, whatever action you were taking was that which would result in the best outcome, which would you opt for? Personally, I would give up any notion of freedom in return for knowing that whatever I did was for the best. Who knows if any of this is literally true? Who knows if that is what the will, the human will, is destined to be someday? But I think it is a helpful ideal to cleave to. The idea that what we will should be because it's good and true. And of course I think this is what Crowley is getting at from a different direction in his notion of true will. So, to summarise where I think the imagery in this dream has taken us so far. There's a goal which is the goal of playing together music in silence. And we considered how this might represent an impossible task of everybody joining together in a recognition of how participating in the divine doesn't reside in us making any audible expression of that. That making an audible expression of that is always going to fall short. In the dream, I know that silence is what I'm aiming for. I know what it is, but I don't know how to do it. And regardless of that, I dare to give it a try. But then something humiliating happens. And what I think we're seeing here is a reminder that human will is flawed. The human will in its present form is capable of willing things that are impossible things that are wrong, things that are bad. It doesn't have that objective quality that is the hallmark of a fully developed body. Unlike our material physical body which can piss and shit and come and we don't have to make that happen, we don't have to create that, it's it's a given. That's what it does. It's as if the dream is saying you don't have the kind of body required for playing silent music. The only fully developed body you have is one that's capable of biological functions. And it is humiliating 
It is mortifying. That horrible smell pervades the room and everybody can see me for what I am. And when I wake up, I recognise that smell. It's the smell of death. It's the smell of mortality. I'm not saying that there's anything bad or wrong or lacking about the physical body. In fact, because it generally does what it needs to do all by itself, in that sense it's perfect. What I take from the dream is a message that knowing, daring, willing and keeping silence might be means of developing and growing certain faculties. What we may be able to conceive or imagine in that regard is not necessarily possible for human beings in their current form. I think it's important to consider that the powers of the Sphinx maybe aren't really powers at all. They're more like pointers towards possible powers, distant ideals. They're more like exercises or practices that we can use to consider how we might want to grow and develop. There are some other aspects of the dream that I think it's worth considering and I feel almost as if what I've done here is to dive into the centre of the dream, the kind of kernel. But there's also this rather intriguing notion of the university. Universities in the waking world, you would hope, are mostly concerned with producing ideas, producing original research. Whereas the university in the dream seems overly preoccupied with the amount of shit it produces. This university produces so much shit that it has to enlist its students in dealing with it. Everybody has to do an induction course on dealing with human waste and everybody has to work for free at making sure all that shit is properly managed. Thankfully, of course, this is a dream, so it bears no relation to the waking world. There is, of course, no reality whatsoever to this idea that universities may be organisations or corporations in general are engaged in generating huge amounts of shit which then they expect their students, members, employees to deal with as if it weren't the responsibility of the university or organisation to take care of its members and free them up to do more valuable things. So, no, of course, there's nothing that has any reflection in reality there at all. And neither, I think, can we make any sense of the guy who I meet in the dream. The university has those contaminated lakes around it. It's not always clear the things that might be polluted and bad for us. So it's understandable, I think, if this guy succumbs to the temptation and dives in. He soon realises that what he's dived into isn't doing him any good. So he gets out, but it's too late now, and everyone's avoiding him because it's apparent that he's been wallowing in the shit. He can't get rid of the smell because he doesn't know how to use the laundrette. 
but I'm very happy to lead him to the laundrette and I'm sure once he finds his way there he'll be able to look at it and work out for himself what he needs to do and then I noticed that thing with his hairstyle how his hairstyle is very much like his son's and his hair seems to be fake or fixed on in some strange way that strikes me as odd a father trying to be like his son if it were the other way round then that would be more understandable because of course a son has less knowledge and wisdom than his father and is more likely to be trying to find his way in the world and if a father were trying to be like his son then that would mean adults were trying to be like children but of course that's just another (laughs) bizarre and random thing from the world of dreams that couldn't possibly have any bearing on what's happening in the waking world So, not only at the centre of this dream, from which we've drawn out themes around our connection with the divine and the nature of the human will, but also in the images that occur around its periphery. There's a sense of things being less than perfect, a sense of living, operating in what is perhaps a less than ideal world. And in terms of the powers of the Sphinx, to know, to dare, to will, and to keep silence, I feel that these two are pointers towards ideals, rather than qualities that we can have, and once we've got them, then everything will be perfect. And as ideals, they're not concepts that are particularly clear-cut. They can be understood in different contexts on different levels. Keeping silence can be taken to mean that we need to be circumspect in what we say and to whom. But there's also an internal dimension to that, no less important I think, which is about stilling our mind, quietening our mind, maintaining our own silence with regard to what we experience in order to experience it all the more fully. This is the silence of concentration, of meditation and of self-reflection. And as the dream seemed to be pointed out, there's also a level of silence which refers to the divine, the absolute, the ineffable. I think it was the Japanese philosopher Nishida Kitaro, who said that God always communicates through silence. Anything else is just magic. And rather than forming a strict sequence in the order that Eliphas Levi originally presented them, knowing, then daring, then willing, and then being silent, it's possible to formulate the relationship between them in all sorts of different ways. Anonymous, for instance, the author of Meditations on the Tarot, in his chapter on the Magician card, he suggests that keeping silence comes before all of the others, because keeping silence, as he understands it, is that internal dimension that we mentioned 
of inner stillness, of concentration. And Anonymous points out that we have to be calm and concentrated before we can do anything. Crowley, on the other hand, perhaps suggests that all the powers of the Sphinx ultimately flow into one another. Maybe he's suggesting that ultimately they're all indistinguishable. In his book, Little Essays Towards Truth, one of the essays is on silence. We are apt to criticise our will, he writes, from the outside, whereas true will should spring, a fountain of light from within, and flow unchecked, seething with love, into the ocean of life. This is the true idea of silence. It is our will which issues, perfectly elastic, sublimely protean, to fill every interstice of the universe of manifestation, which it meets in its course. My understanding of what Crowley is getting at there is that the true will, like the angelic will we imagined earlier, it's not an expression of ourselves, it's not us expressing anything. The true will is merely when we flow with the rest of the universe. And because we're just doing what we do rather than expressing ourselves as such, then this is a silencing. Often there's an inner voice inside that second guesses and questions and doubts. But when we're doing what it is our nature to do, what we're supposed to be doing, then all of that goes quiet. Maybe... It seems a bit odd to have taken a dream as the basis of our investigation of the magical virtue of silence. But sometimes dreams come along and they're kind of like portals that open up into images and analogies that seem so deep they're almost inexhaustible. And I think it's important that when a dream like that is given to us, that we make the most of it. Dreaming as a magical practice can sometimes be a bit underrated. Anyhow, we've reached the end for this episode. As ever... Do remember that you can support the podcast and access additional material on Patreon. To find out more about that, just visit patreon.com slash oeith. Take care, and I look forward to us speaking again soon. Bye-bye.